The series on the church is uh, titled, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? And this particular message and the next two are subtitled, Are Women Second Class Citizens in the Church? Or, I have another title that I'm playing with, and that is, Did God Give Women the Short End of the Stick? But you get the gist of it one way or the other. I confess to you that there have been two times in my life in ministry when I have taught on this subject when I wish that I had not. In both of those occasions, I was in a setting where I was not particularly well known to the audience, and it was my first exposure to them, and in both churches, both their belief and their practice deviated from what I taught. And I fear that I went into it uh, with the stick, uh, and I was working it, and probably not in in a very wise and helpful way. I I have to confess to you that I also uh, come to this subject uh, with a fair bit of apprehension. Not the apprehension of doubt as to whether I believe what I believe is true, but the apprehension that comes from uh, dealing with a subject that is uh, very uh, emotional and oftentimes controversial. I would guarantee you that no megachurch would ever teach what I'm going to teach today. If they did, people would leave. And in fact, it is even possible that someone may leave today uh, as I'm speaking or because I've spoken. I would encourage you before you bail out on us all together Stay with me for three lessons, if you will. The third lesson is going to be a little bit of an Alfred Hitchcock ending and maybe a little different than what you would expect. I would also say that I am not here to use the stick on this congregation because nearly all of you, I think, embrace the same view that I do. Um, And and in fact, some of you, uh, some of the women may hold to it just as strongly as I do. And they love what the scriptures teach on this point. So it's not with that kind of attitude that I approach at all. But I do have friends, good friends who feel very differently and very strongly differently than I do on this subject. And so I realize that uh, in a sense I probably am not walking on exegetically thin ice, at least not in my mind, but I may be walking on relationally thin ice because some people find this a very offensive truth to deal with. So why teach it? Well, obviously, we're in a series that has to do with the church. And if you're going to talk about the church, then one of the things that you must deal with is the ministry of men and women in the church. And so this is a vital part of that series. And because of the level of opposition and because of the growing popularity of alternative uh, alternative views, uh, mainly egalitarian views, uh, there is a need, I think, to address this. And, And I would say One of my major concerns is it really boils down to how you deal with Scripture. It all comes down to how you handle the Word of God. And it is a little distressing to me. No, it's very distressing to me to hear people say, I know the Bible said that for them then, but it says something different to us now. That is a slippery slope, folks, and I'm telling you, it scares me to death. Because once you begin to take the pages of Scripture and the commands of Christ and set them aside, then I don't know where it ends. 
but I know it isn't a very good place. And so I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Last thing I, I have on the frame there is level of probability. Uh, in, in the Greek text, when there is a variation in the text, you'll have the critical notes at the bottom and they'll say uh, that we believe this is the most likely, if there's a variation in words or whatever, this is the most likely choice. Uh, or they'll downgrade it and say, this is sort of a risky choice, but this is kind of our, our decision. I'm going to tell you right now, in terms of the level of probability, it's very high in my mind. I do not have doubts about what I am teaching. Uh, people may disagree with me. They may think I'm crazy. I have no doubts about the truth of what the scripture is saying. And so I want to approach it uh, on the one hand with gentleness and humility. On the other hand, I do not in any way wish to convey some kind of half-hearted commitment to what I believe the scriptures clearly say and teach. All right, enough of that. Where are we going to go with this? We're going to have three lessons on this just out of necessity, and I'm going to have to work uh, to stay within my own self-imposed limits. But this week, I want to talk about what the Bible teaches about the role of women. I want to look at the Old Testament background. I want to look at, at the New Testament backdrop. I want to look at principles of Scripture and so on, and then t uh, come to some conclusions at the end. In the next lesson next week, I want to take on the opposing arguments. What is it that people find so compelling that they feel they must come to some other conclusion than what the scriptures rather clearly seem to say? What are those arguments and what is our response to them? I think it's our obligation to address them. And the third week, my Alfred Hitchcock week, is really a, a, the great reversal. And that is, what is it that, we, that women might think they are missing by the way God has given instructions for the church. And I would like to suggest that what we see is not a curse. It is a blessing and, and that women in this church really embrace that and they find the, 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 uh, the ministry that God has given to them precisely what satisfies their, their heart. Now, I have a, a request to make at this point of them as well. On that third lesson, what I would like to do is share uh, the, the things that I have. But I also would appreciate if some of you women would share with me, if you would email me or write me or whatever and say, this is how I prepare for the meeting of the church. This is how I worship God silently, because I think that we have have become prone to think that the only way to worship God is to worship him verbally and publicly. And I would challenge that that is true. In fact, sometimes it may be that I'm thinking too much about what I could say or when I should say it rather than thinking about our Lord and responding to him. So if you women would help me on that, that would be greatly appreciated. All right, let's look at the Old, Pre Old Testament precedent and the divine distinctions that are there based upon gender. Now, these are just a handful, and I'm sure there are many more. Uh, and I must admit to you, some of them I don't fully grasp in my mind as to why they are the way they are, but they are certainly gender-based. When you look at the passing of the torch from one uh, father uh, down to the next generation, it's always through a son. You'll notice that I passed, uh, put in there those texts in numbers where a father may not have a son 
and that becomes the exception where the daughters then will be the inheritors. They must marry, however, within their tribe for that that inheritance to stay uh, within the tribe. But it's always the son through whom the inheritance will pass. Uh, When the census was taken, it was taken of males. That was because in those days men fought and women stayed at home. I'll probably stop right there and say no more. But it was males 20 years old and older. Here's a real puzzle to me. Ceremonial uncleanness. When a woman in the Old Testament had a boy baby, she was unclean for seven days. When a woman in the Old Testament had a girl baby, she was unclean for 14 days. Now, if I know anything about boys and girls, boys are dirtier than girls. So I don't think it has to do with that. I think you have to say God has made a distinction that is based upon gender that is an expression of his sovereignty. Uh, Vows. If you notice that text in Numbers, when a woman makes a vow, if it's an unmarried woman and her father hears the vow upon his hearing of that vow, he has the option to nullify it. Especially, I assume, that's in a case where a vow has been rather foolishly made. The father has the right to nullify that vow. If a woman marries, or if she is married and her husband hears the vow, he has the right to nullify that. It doesn't work in reverse. And I would say, folks, that may take some faith because some of us men have made some really foolish decisions that would have been sometimes from a human point of view good if our wives had uh, kept us out of it or gotten us out of it. So there's the, the vows. Here's another one. The jealousy offering. Remember that? This is when a man has suspicions about his wife's moral purity. And she, there is to be a sacrifice, but you remember then, he takes the dirt from the tabernacle floor, puts it in, in the water, and she drinks it. And if she swells up and all this terrible stuff, then obviously she's guilty. If she does not, then she's innocent. There is no corresponding uh, thing for men to be taking in the case of their wives' suspicion. When you come to divorce... You see provisions made for the man, like Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 and following. You see the man's options there. You do not see women's options. Now, all of those are gender-based. And all I can say is, anybody who reads the Old Testament has to come to the conclusion, God has made distinctions based upon whether you are male or female. At this point, I think I'll let that stand. But now look at some of the other areas uh, on the last part of that frame. No women can be priests. No women, or I should say few women in the Old Testament were prophetesses. A few. I'll deal with that next week. But, uh, but not, uh, not numerous uh, women were, were prophets. And no women were kings. In that text in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where God is speaking through Moses about the kings, you know, number one, that after David, it's always going to be someone of the lineage of David. It's going to be one of his sons. But in that text that describes what the king must do, it is he must do this. He must do that. It was never conceived of that one that a woman would be the king of Israel. Now, I put in there the caveat that Athaliah, you remember, uh, usurped the throne of Israel 
But that's a whole different story. Uh, that was a rebellion and she was uh, dispatched. So that was obviously an exception to the rule. New Testament practice. I, I, I just find it interesting. But do you notice, for instance, even in the New Testament, when you number uh, the crowds, you are numbering the men not the women and children. In fact, that text in Matthew makes it clear the feeding of the of the five thousand. It's five thousand men, not including women and children. I don't know why. I'm, I'm just making the observation that that is the way it is done. I want to focus particularly on our Lord Jesus, because if we if we understand the New Testament, Jesus was not bound by the way Judaism did it. Jesus was not bound by the way the culture did it. I think you would have to agree that when our Lord Jesus dealt with women, he elevated them to a place that their culture did not. But having said all of that, Jesus did not pick women to be disciples. And in particular, he did not pick women to be among the twelve who would be apostles. When you see Jesus traveling about... You see women accompanying him. In particular, I'm thinking of the text in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, uh, where, where Jesus goes about and these women follow him. And their role seems to be, among other things, to support the Lord Jesus and this troop of, of, of people who are going out with their financial means. And they may well have, have fixed meals. I don't know what all they did. My point is that the women who accompanied Jesus had a different function than the men who accompanied Jesus. And so either you must say Jesus was wrong or you must say Jesus, like that in the Old Testament, made distinctions between male and female and the part that they may play in his ministry. Apostolic practice does not change that. When you look at the at the epistles, the book of Acts and the epistles, you do not see women appointed. Uh, you didn't you not see, for instance, the in the early chapters of Acts, a woman appointed as a sort of token woman apostle. Uh, you do not see women who are playing leadership roles. You do not see women appointed as elders. That is a male role. And that is consistent uh, with the Old Testament as we as we look at the epistles, I would say this. I made this last point. There was no significant overturning of the Old Testament when it comes to male and female and, and their roles with respect to leadership. And I'm coming particularly to that verse in First Corinthians fourteen thirty four. Where it is saying where Paul says that women are to be silent in the churches as saith the law. So if we are inclined to approach this subject and say, well, we grant you that what takes place in the Old Testament, that, that we don't like it, but we acknowledge it's there. But Jesus changed it all in the new. That's just not true. It's not true. Paul says that what he is teaching is consistent with the teaching of the of the Old Testament. Now, I do not want to say there are no changes. For instance, when I come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I notice that when Paul is talking about the relationship between the male, the husband and his wife, 
He talks about the husband fulfilling his duty to the wife. He talks about the wife fulfilling her duty to the husband. He talks about the husband not leaving his wife. He talks about the wife not leaving her husband. And so in that sense, there is a mutuality in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that I do not see in the Old Testament where it seems more lopsided. But bottom line, there are no radical overturnings of Old Testament practice. Doctrinal foundations. Try these on for size. One of the great arguments uh, that is posed is that somehow subordination overrules equality. That is, there can be no equality when there is subordination. The doctrine of the Trinity just throws that to the wind. Because there you have a clear picture of our Lord Jesus Christ who is in submission to his father. You'll notice those texts. I think the John 12 text, verses 48 through 52, is perhaps one of the clearest. But our Lord Jesus is saying, I do not say anything on my own. I only speak those words which the father has given me. The Lord Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Philippians chapter 2 says that our Lord Jesus Christ did not claim his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he took on the form of man. He was obedient to death, even the death on the cross of Calvary. Our Lord Jesus Christ is clearly in subordination to the Father. I didn't add that text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I should have. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, late. Upper left-hand page of my Bible. I don't know where it's at in yours. But in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he basically says that what's going to happen is when the Father has subordinated all of the enemies, the last enemy being death, and the Lord Jesus is exalted to that supreme place of honor and glory and authority, he is going to hand it back to his Father. Now, that is in stark contrast to Satan who is clearly inferior to God, who is not God, but is in second place, so to speak. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But remember, he wants to be first and he isn't going to give it up, or at least he's not going to give up his efforts to be first. Our Lord Jesus is equal to the Father and he hands that back. Subordination is not, or subjection is not a negation of equality so far as we see in the Trinity itself. That's true of the Holy Spirit as well in the Godhead. John chapter 16, our Lord Jesus basically says the Holy Spirit is going to speak those things which I have given him to say. He will explain to you and call to your recollection the things that I have said. So the Spirit is not exalting himself. The Spirit is exalting Christ as Christ is exalting the Father. Submission and the sovereignty of God. Over and over again, you see that man must acknowledge that God is sovereign. And, and the hardest place to acknowledge it is when you don't understand what he's doing. I put that text there in Genesis chapter 48. Remember, all of his life, Jacob thinks he can wrestle God out of blessing. And, and so you, you see him in effect. I think of that statement with Paul. You know, why are you kicking against the pricks? When he stands before Pharaoh at 130 years old, Pharaoh says, how's it going, man? Sort of. And, and he says, man, it's been tough. For 130 years, he's been wrestling with God, trying to get his way. And remember, when he's now going to bless his grandsons, he's going to give Joseph the double portion by taking both of his sons. But it's 
it's uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he has it nicely laid out. So Manasseh will be at his father's left hand and Ephraim will be at his father's right hand. And when he gets close enough, his eyes weren't too good. But when he gets close enough to see, Jacob crosses his hands. And his dad, his son said, Joseph says, no, dad, 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 you got it wrong. He said, I don't have it wrong, son. I don't have it wrong. What he is acknowledging is that God in his sovereignty has the right to break the cultural rules and to elevate the younger son instead of the older son. That's the sovereignty of God. And what I'm trying to say, if God has that right to do that with respect to whom he will bless between two sons, he has the right to make distinction between male and female. And we, I believe, have the responsibility to submit to his sovereign uh, purposes and revelations. Creation and the fall. This is a big one. But let me take you to Satan. And I have to say to you, and I know people who take a different view would be offended that I'm going to make as much of Satan as I do. I'm sorry, but, but I, I need to do it anyway. Look at Satan in terms of Isaiah chapter 14, verse 14. I will be like the Most High. And Ezekiel chapter 28, and while it's not stated as clearly, it's pretty evident that this creature wants to exalt himself to a divine place. He wants to make himself, in effect, equal to God. If he could take over, he would do that. Everywhere you see Satan at work, you will see him seeking to implement that or to tempt others to do it themselves. When you therefore come to the temptation uh, of Adam and Eve in the garden, who does he tempt? Now, my, t- my take is that Adam is there with her, but he focuses eff- his efforts on Eve. Let's call her number two for the moment. He focuses his efforts on number two. And what he says to her is God has withheld something good from you, something very desirable It is so good that you ought to step out from authority under your husband and out from authority under God. And you should act independently to achieve your own well-being as you perceive it. She seeks to be wise, which is interesting because Paul's going to pick that up in Second Corinthians, which is one of the great problems there. People coming along with their wisdom that, that somehow departs from the word of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. So you see, then, when we come to the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew uh, chapter four, I think I got the verses wrong there somewhere. So pardon me. Matthew chapter four, uh, verses one through twelve or Luke chapter four, uh, I think it's verses one through thirteen. Then what you see is Satan saying to the son of God, you could have all of these things for yourself. If you simply acted independently to pursue your own self-interest, that is precisely what Satan did. That is precisely what he tempted Eve to do. And it is precisely, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, what Satan seeks to do continually, and in particular there in the church at Corinth. Satan is one who is seeking to overthrow God's order. And, And therefore, I have to say Although it sounds unkind, I have to say to people who throw this to the wind, I have to say there is an evil hand in this because the scriptures are clear. And we know where Satan would love to lead us down that primrose path. Eve, 
if we had much time, uh, more time, we would pursue this. But when you notice the texts that deal with how Paul says women should conduct themselves, he always goes back to the fall. Or in chapter 14, late 33, 34, he goes back to the law. But when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Paul is talking to women about head covering, he talks about who was created first. He talks about who was created from whom headship and uh, one aspect of headship. He talks about who is to serve whom. And it all goes back to what we read in the in the account of the fall and in the account of creation. When you come to First Timothy, chapter two, where Paul is speaking again about particular things that can and cannot take place. You remember that women are to learn quietly. They are not to teach men. They are not to exercise authority over men. And he makes the point in that instance that it was Eve who was thoroughly deceived, not not Adam. I need to pick that up because I'm not willing to say all women are more gullible than men. Uh, I've seen a whale of a lot of gullible men, so I don't think that's the point. But Eve was deceived. And so that sets the pattern for what Paul is going to teach and the 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 uh, obedience that is required of her because of that. And then in the case of Adam, you remember in Genesis chapter three, it, she sa- it says, and she gave it to her husband who was with her. That looks to me like Adam is sitting around. So help me, folks. If Adam would have lived today, he would have been looking at a football game on a widescreen TV, sitting in a chair with a beer in his hand. No, I don't know what he was doing, but he was there, but he was not engaged. And yet he was the one to lead. And so it says, God says to him, because you listened to your wife. This is the curse that's going to come upon you. Adam was to lead and instead he followed. And the consequences of that go on into the present day. We need to keep in mind the whole element of angelic instruction. Ephesians chapter three, where it talks about all of these things being played out. Remember, first Corinthians 11, where it talks about the conduct of women, the attire of women. It says because of the angels. First Peter chapter one says the angels are desiring to look into these things. I take it that there may be a time in the future where the angels have a decision to make when the great spiritual battle is taking place. And there may be some other angels who bail out and who choose to follow Satan. If that is true then what they are, what they should be learning as they watch the church is they should be learning about subordination because that is the issue that they must face. And Satan, of course, is seeking to move them in the opposite direction. The last one is the principle of male headship. And that is that I think is just crystal clear. But let's look at first Corinthians chapter 11 and verse three. There are other texts, but remember, he says this first Corinthians 11, verse three. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. The headship of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians chapter five, is manifested through the leadership 
And Paul would even say the, the way in which uh, men would carry it out, head covered or uncovered. And, and uh, that is manifested through the men. And the subordination of the church to Christ is demonstrated through Ephesians chapter 5. It's demonstrated by the woman being in subordination to her husband. So it is a principle that I think is clearly established. And we need to see the commands of the scriptures based upon that. New Testament commands. A, these are commands. I don't know how to say this any more clearly, folks. You know, in the old days, in the old computer days, they had what we call command line stuff. And you had to type in stuff on on a command line. And you didn't have all this nice graphical interface stuff to just point mouses and click and whatever. But the bottom line was the command line is what made things work. And when you look at that scripture, it's Jesus who says in Matthew chapter 28 in in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey All that I have commanded you. Right. When Paul gives his instructions pertaining to the conduct of women in the meeting of the church in first Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, these are the commands of Christ. Let anybody who hears me acknowledge these are Christ's commands. And we know from first Corinthians uh, chapter four. And in chapter 11 and in chapter 14, that Paul basically says, these are the things that I command. These are the things that I practice. This is what Timothy, chapter 4, verse 17, I think. This is what Timothy is going to tell you is my ways which are in Christ in every church. I do not fathom how anybody can say, well, in that culture, blah, 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 that culture When we go down that trail, I don't know where it ends. This is universal instruction. I mean, does the gospel change for the pagan in Africa because their culture is different? No. Truth is truth and commands are commands and they are to be obeyed. And so when we come to these things that Paul teaches and he gives them to us as commands, I do not know how we can set them aside with some kind of impunity, as though that's just easily done. Look at the specific commands, and I'm not going to dwell too much on those. First Corinthians chapter 11 is the command regarding women covering their heads. And I I point out that whole text is about the head covering as a symbol of the woman's submission. So submission is the is the key uh, concept and head covering is that which is symbolic of it. But submission is his point. Or his major point, I should say. Then when you look at, uh, in addition to that, you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He's now talking about the silence and submission of women within the church meeting as the church gathers. Verse 33 and following. Let the women keep silent in the church. And there he says they are not even to ask a question. They are to ask their own husbands at home. Now, I got to tell you, that doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room. Now, in my understanding, the, the way in which often opposition came was in the form of a question. Isn't it true that there here in this passage of Scripture that, that this is said and this text over here is said? So how in the world do you come up with your wacky idea? You know, and so the question really becomes instruction. I'm not so uptight about simple questions being asked, although, again, 
The whole focus is that men may take their leadership role. The responsibility of the wife is to lay questions at their husband's feet so that they will have to think through the scriptures and play out their leadership uh, role. First Timothy, chapter two, women are to receive instruction quietly. They are not to teach men and they are not to exercise authority over them. Now, there are all kinds of implications for that, but uh, that's what the text says. So I'm going to just say right now, when it comes to the application, things are not always as crystal clear. And some people may say that they are arbitrary. And you know what I would say? You're right. You have to make decisions. It doesn't matter whether you see our a point of view precisely. I remember being in a group of, of, of pastors and they were talking about this whole thing. And I said, OK, guys, you know, I'm I'm way out here over on this side. So, you know where I'm at. But every one of you has to make decisions as well as to where you're going to draw the line and you're going to draw it somewhere. And one of the older brothers says, you're right. We let women get up and give missionary reports from the pulpit. And he said, the difference between a missionary report and a sermon can get really thin. But you draw a line. You know, they, they have to draw a line somewhere. And, and what happens is somebody will say, well, you let this happen, but you won't let this happen. And they're so close. That's right, because there's a line somewhere. And you have to draw that. Here are some of the issues. Silence. Does that mean absolute silence? Does it mean when we sing congregational hymns, the women can't sing with the men? We don't think so. But that's an issue that you have to face. Uh, when you talk about not teaching men, we know that women can teach children. And so in our Sunday schools, we say that women may teach uh, young children. But we also draw a line and we say, OK, there is a point at which little boys start to become young men. <laughs> you want to pick a year? Well, we picked one, I think. And we said, I think, basically from junior high, at least certainly in high school, that those are young men. And therefore, we do not want women teaching young men. We drew a line. Everybody draws one somewhere. We drew them where we thought it would be best. What constitutes leadership is uh, having a woman on a committee leadership is having a woman be the chairman of a committee leadership is a woman being on a board leadership somewhere. You have to draw those lines. We believe it is very clear that women cannot and should not be elders. We do think that women have leadership with other women, and we encourage that. We welcome it. We are delighted with what we see. Is there a difference between what we do when the church gathers, as we do on Sunday morning, as opposed to what happens when a ministry group gathers in a home? We think so. And so we encourage women to pray in those groups, although if a group decides they think that that's not appropriate, they have that right to do that. Uh, a woman can share observations, can ask questions, because we think that's the intimacy of a home and it's not the gathering of the church. Can people overstep those? Look, folks, if you want to break the rules, you can break them anywhere you want. It, it's just easy. You can find a way. The Pharisees did it all the time. And it was just like, like, you know, and we do it, too. 
You can find a way to get away with what you want. For instance, you could have your head covered with a flour sack. It doesn't make you submissive. You know, you could be mumbling under that sack, you know, whatever you want to do. It isn't you. You can carry out all of the kinds of of of, uh, physical things and, and your heart may not be right. And you'll find a way around what that text is talking about. But you have to draw some lines. So let me just talk about um, how uh, some some things uh, on sort of concluding thoughts. The way I approach it is Matthew 28 says our Lord Jesus says we are to teach men to obey every command. Paul says that his teaching about women is the command of Christ. He says it is universal. And he also says in first Corinthians 14, if anyone would be recognized, let them acknowledge this is true, which seems to say if you deny that as being true, then you really don't have authority. Now, that's that's pretty powerful words. But those are Paul's words. And this is where it gets really spooky. Some people will actually say that's just Paul. That is frightening to me. Because now what you have said is, this is not really the word of God. This is the word of some chauvinistic, cranky bachelor. That is, that is a very frightening path to take. As I said before, I do not do this to correct uh, in an effort. I, it doesn't enter my mind that this is an effort to straighten people out here. So far as I know, most all of you are, are pretty much, at least to some degree, on board with what we're saying. But I got to tell you, we are rare. This is not the going thing in evangelical circles. It is not the way to make churches grow. And we'll never be a mega church if we do this. There are some people who will literally walk in this door and figure out what we're doing in this one issue. And they'll spin right around and head out that door. That's the way it is. And that's how strongly some people feel about it. And I got to tell you, folks. To me, well, I might as well say it right now. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let me just go there. Since my time is up. This is what it's really all about. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, our culture, is saying to us, we will have none of that. I've literally spoken to friends on the phone where they almost hung up for me saying something in a gentle way about this issue. This is this is the world will not stand for this kind of teaching. The flesh. Is it not true, folks, that we all want to be number one? Is it not true? I mean, I think about the disciples and I'm going to get back to this. But here's Jesus sitting at the Last Supper and saying to Judas in the full hearing of his other disciples. Yes, Judas, you're the one. And none of them heard it. Why? Because they had their own conversation going about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Everybody wants first chair. That's our flesh. That's where it all is inclined. From within, I have to be on guard in terms of that. And as I suggested to you, the devil, this is his agenda. He's been playing this song because it is the theme of his heart. He has been playing this song. And when you look at 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to close with this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. These are powerful words. 
We've read about Satan in in chapter three. We see him in Matthew chapter four in the temptation of our Lord. Look what he says to the Corinthians who are seeking teachers who are wise, but are setting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross aside. He says, but I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his treachery, your minds may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's, it's just that simple. It's just that simple. Trust and obey. Take Jesus at his word and accept it and embrace it. But there will always be those who say, this is a much more complex issue. Well, I, you can get complex till the cows come home. These verses don't go away. These commands don't disappear. It really is simple. That's what I'm saying. It really is simple. The issue is our heart rebels against it. Now, sounds like I'm railing at women. Our hearts as men, we love that easy chair. We love that widescreen TV. We love sitting on our duffs and doing nothing. We are just as responsible. Our flesh is just as disinclined to do what God told us to do as women may be disinclined to do what God told them to do. We're all rebels. And we need God's grace at work in our lives to make us to embrace what God says. Now, this is stealing on my thunder for the third lesson. But I want to say, when God withholds something good, or apparently good, it is because he has something better. I'm going to give you just this thought. And I know it's out on the, the exegetical limb a bit, and the limb is kind of shaken. But, but here it is. God said to Adam and Eve... You may not partake of the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God forbade them knowledge through eating the fruit. I would like to suggest to you that it was not that God wanted to keep them ignorant and barefoot. It's that God wanted to teach them the truth in intimacy and fellowship with him. Isn't that what they did in the garden? They walk with our Lord in the garden. What do you want to do? Pick an apple and eat it? Or do you want to say to the living God, tell me more? God wasn't withholding anything excellent. He was withholding that so that they could have something better. And I want to say to you, whatever negative feeling you've got from this, God is not keeping you from something truly good. He is leading you to something really good. And that is to himself, because more important than anything else is that we know him and have intimate fellowship and satisfaction in him. That's what we talked about this morning, wasn't it? If we are fully satisfied in him, that's just a lousy bush with some kind of fruit on it. That's all it is. If you've not trusted in the Lord Jesus as your savior, I hope you won't be offended unduly, but that you will understand God did not come here to bolster our egos. He came to show us our sin and to provide a solution in the Lord Jesus. And we are to stop being rebels and we are to acknowledge our sin and acknowledge the perfection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that He died 
for sinners and to trust in him for the only way that we may get to heaven. And that is through his son. That, too, is repugnant to an unbeliever. But it is the only way. It is the aroma either of life to life or of death to death. Father, thank you for these texts. Thank you for the way in which you have orchestrated. And Father, just as as we need to urge uh, the women in our body to be submissive, we also want to urge the men in our body to be leaders. Help us, Father, to be obedient to you and to follow your commands to your glory and ultimately to our good. In Jesus' name, amen.